0: Here's a confession, now four months removed from the release of my latest book, Three-Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty. I thought I was going to get absolutely pummeled. With Kobe's death, and with the uh, not the most flattering portrayal of the man, I braced for social media to light me up, for readers to revolt, for Laker officials to curse my name. But then something happened, and it reinforced an idea. That something was nothing. Almost no complaints. Almost no anger. And what it reinforced for me as a journalist is that if you report your ass off and you write truthfully and with integrity, you're generally going to come out just fine. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode stars Seth Davis, the managing editor of The Athletic College Basketball, college hoops reporter for CBS Sports, and my longtime friend and former Sports Illustrated colleague. And a special programming note, Seth and I recorded this in a live Zoom session with the journalism students of Cow State University in Northridge. This is episode number 193. Let's sling some yang. Well, first of all, this is a, uh, I guess, a special edition. My name is Jeff Perlman, and I'm a longtime sports writer, and I host a, a weekly journalism podcast, a writing podcast, called Two Writers, Sling and Yang, where every week I have a different writing guest. And um, this week, my guest, live here in a university setting, is Seth Davis, who is a longtime, longtime college basketball writer. He's with The Athletic now, and Seth and I actually... We sort of came up, we both started at newspapers. He came out of Duke in 1992. I came out of Delaware in 1994. Seth started at the New Haven Register. I started the National Tennessee and coming out of college. And then um, Seth got to Sports Illustrated in 1995. I got to Sports Illustrated in 1996. We both found ourselves working in a place called the bullpen. Actually, Seth, I'll, I'll start with this. We both started in the bullpen. For people here or people listening who don't know, because it's one of my favorite subjects, how would you describe the bullpen of Sports Illustrated in the mid
1: 1990s? Uh just fun. I mean, you say that word, you know, a smile comes to my face. We were so young and eager and excited to be at um Sports Illustrated, you know, and you know, we all had had big dreams and big designs and, you know, a lot of us have gone on to do some really cool things. I mean, Chad Millman went on to run uh ESPN magazine. Um comes to mind. And of course, uh, what you've done and John Wertheim and and Steve Cannella uh, shared an office with me uh, the very first day. I want to say, Jeff, July 7th, 1995. And we shared an office for a couple of years, came to be great friends, of course, came up together. Um, whenever July 7th would come around, I would always tweak him because he never remembered our anniversary. Oh, it's our anniversary and you forget. So we had that kind of relationship. And 22 years later, Jeff, Steve Canella was the assistant managing editor of Sports Illustrated. He called me to tell me I was being laid off. (laughs) Is that true? Can you you imagine? Um, And when I got there, I got there a little bit before you did. Uh, Mark Mulvoy was the outgoing managing editor, and they were having a bake-off between Bill Colson, who got the job, and Dan Okrent, uh, who is a footnote of history, is the guy who literally invented – Fantasy football. I've explained yeah. to my kids what rotisserie baseball was, but um, you know, it was a four-day work week, Thursday, Friday, Sunday, Monday. And I distinctly remember Mark Mulvoy like late on a Sunday night hitting golf balls down the hallway. Like it was a, a long kind of rectangular hallway that went all around the building on the 18th and 19th floors. And Mulvoy was hitting golf balls. To- <laughs> Down the hallway. So I'm like, I guess that's the kind of uh, the environment that he, he fostered. He's a legendary guy. I didn't really get to know him because he was gone. But really, Jeff, I'm sure you can relate to this, um, w- was the incredible education that we got, fact-checking. And I try to explain this to people, like you'd sit there uh, and the first thing, you know, so somebody uh, plops a, a story on your desk and says, you know, you got to fact-check this. The first thing you do is call the writer and you say... Where'd you get this? Where'd you get this? How'd you get this? And you sort of go retrace the writer's footsteps. And then you sit in these editor meetings as everybody goes over the stories. And so you really understand, you know, how an editor thinks and you know how a story gets better or maybe doesn't get better uh, as as it goes through the system. So it was kind of a cool, um, cool way to come up. I mean, I was 25 when I started working there. And like I said, I had 22 great years at sports illustrated and that those were very formative years for me because there's no way, I was going to grad school. I was done with Duke and I was done with school and uh, that was it.
0: I feel like for a lot of you guys here and a lot of people listening, it's hard to understand or fathom this sort of generational divide. So we, Seth and I were out of college a couple of years. We get hired by Sports Illustrated. They say, you're going to be a reporter. And what that meant was you're checking facts. You're sitting in an office, you're getting an article like this, and you have to go through it with a pen, word by word by word. Any fact you circle. So they're sending in articles that other writers wrote. You circle a fact and you have to call. So if it says Derek Jeter, you literally have to fact check the name Derek Jeter. If it said he hit 320, he better have not hit 323 because you are going to blame the fact checker, not the writer who did it. And you would be in these offices and you'd, you'd fact check, fact check. And it would be, it was this long hallway in New York City, in the Time Warner building, Time Life building, I think at the time. And it was just a bunch of us who desperately, desperately, like desperately wanted to be senior writers at Sports Illustrated, at Sports Illustrated, and this was our pathway to do it. Do you remember, Seth, the fear, the absolute fear when when there was something wrong in a story you checked?
1: Well, I mean, the thing is, we used to get challenge letters, right? So this, oh, was, yeah. I mean, literally like email, I guess email was kind of just starting up, but not really. We had like an uh, uh, intra, intra-office electronic communication called QuickTime. Do you remember mm-hmm. that? Yeah. You um, and then how about the line at the Nexus machine? There was one, right? Oh there gosh. was one portal where you could get on Nexus and you'd have to sign up and then print out the articles. I mean, we're sound like two very, very oh old uh, white That's guys. we are. Um, yeah, which we are. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know, like mortal fear, but wh- I, I guess what you learned was if there was a fact that was wrong, then you were going to get a letter, you know, like you couldn't, it just wasn't an option because so unless you wanted to, deal with getting a letter and having to write a a response to that letter, um, then you better make sure your facts. And so what a great habit to be able to develop. So that's a great example of how fear is very useful. Uh, Worry is very useful. Like, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. Um, Frankly, I deal with that now at The Athletic. I know that if, if I write like a picks column and I call Joe Smith a junior and he's a sophomore, some loving commenter is going to put that in the comment section on the story and correct it for all the world to see. So I have that fear um, when I submit a story. Um, I don't know. I, I think a good thing about being in the bullpen is, you know, we, everybody knew that everybody was good, you know, and uh, Grant Wall, by the way, is another name that, that um, was in that bullpen mm-hmm. and it's gone on to amazing things in, in, in the world of soccer. So you had to really proactively pitch stories and come up with ideas and, you know, maneuver the politics of of a big organization like Sports Illustrated and, and and figure that out and, you know, have that, have that ambition and follow through and complete the task. And, um, and that's really doing the job of a story, right? Even when you have a story assignment, you have to be proactive. You have to get in touch with people. You have to really think, you know, how am I going to produce this, This story. So um, you, you were definitely, I said, you came a little bit later than I was there, but you were definitely um, a a motivator for me. And then I saw, you know, someone who worked hard and was ambitious and really was able to produce um, not only in great quality, but also in great quantity. I teach or
0: I advise a student newspaper at Chapman. I always say to my students, it's the same thing I'd say to the students here right now, you can't control. So so there are going to be students of people applying for jobs coming out of Syracuse coming out of Northwestern, coming out of Missouri, these journalism powerhouses, right? They're going to be coming out of bigger journalism schools than you are. Some of these people are going to have internships at the New York Times or the Boston Globe or the Athletic, all these, right? But the one thing you can control, and I always felt this way when I was coming out of Delaware is you can bust your ass. Like you can work harder than the other people. You That is 1 million percent in your control that you can outwork them. And I, mean, I got to say, I did work really hard and Seth worked, like Seth, I always felt like you were, you always stayed out of the political fray. The bullpen was very heated at times. It was very like, it was a lot of young (laughs) people in their 20s who really wanted to kick each other's ass and blah, blah. You worked really hard and you stayed out of the politics of the bullpen. Did you have a path or a plan to get from there to where you are here?
1: First of all, part of what you're describing is just my innate um, personality. I'm a little bit introverted, more introverted than people would think. I I like my solitude. Uh, I recently learned uh, a name for that is uh, transcendentalist. I'm a transcendentalist. <laughs> I like, I you know I, I like I like my solitude. Um, but I also you know as, as you well know I'm a big summer camp guy. I went to Camp Equinon. and when I moved to New York City, I had countless friends who were from camp connected to camp. I mean, they're still my. My, my best friends, you see over my, my shoulder, this picture of the four of us. We call ourselves the board because um, so, you know, I think a lot of times what happens is when people get a new job, they go to a new city. This happened to me when I, when I went to New Haven is you socialize with the people that you work with. So everyone's working together and like, hey, we're all going out tonight. at such and such bar or whatever. And it's like, well, we kind of just spent all day together. So I'm not sort of overly anxious, but I also had this incredible social network in, in, in that regard. Um, you know the college basketball thing was was natural for me, and that obviously I went to Duke. So I you know I had you know sort of deep you know knowledge and familiarity, and it started to build up my will of contacts. And then when I got to New Haven, I spent two and a half years there covering high school basketball, and one of the sports that I covered, excuse me, uh, covering all high school sports, but one of my focuses was uh, basketball. So I kind of got deeper into the recruiting world, and you know, John like John Calipari was at UMass, and. Uh, I covered Marcus Camby in high schools and, and got to know, you know, the Yukon beat a little bit. Uh, interesting also, Adrian Wojnowski at the time was uh, the Yukon beat writer for the Waterbury Republican American. So Adrian was really one of my first um, friends in in journalism in, in that regard. And the other thing, Jeff, which I know you, you picked up on at the time was I really did know that I had not just the ambition, but, and I say this with all modesty, the, the real capacity to do television at a high level. It was a strategic decision of mine coming out of Duke, where I hosted a, a, a TV show at the TV station and always thought I wanted to be like Joe TV guy, and then got not really sidetracked, but made the strategic decision that I could probably do television at a higher level as a writer. I looked up and I saw Will McDonough, I saw Pete Axthelm, um, you know, doing this and thought, hey, that could be me um, without really anticipating just how well it would work out. So when CNN SI came along, which is, you know, for people who don't know, Time Warner merged with Turner. And so they created CNN SI, which was a precursor to ESPN News it actually came out before ESPN News. News it was 24 hours of uh, of sports coverage. And CNN at that time had a very significant sports presence. They had that nightly. Remember that nightly sports show it was kind of like their- sure with with Nick Charles, uh, Fred Hickman. So when CNNSI came along, you know, part of the concept was, hey, we're going to take Sports Illustrated writers and put them on TV. Um, but the fact is, a lot of writers didn't want to be on TV and weren't necessarily well suited for it. And I and I did want to be on TV and, and thought I was well suited. So well before I was getting in the magazine consistently, I was doing CNNSI and then CNN actually, not CNNSI, Jeff, big CNN. Used to have a Saturday morning half hour show. This is sounds incredible to say now called College Basketball Weekly, a 30 minute show on Saturday mornings, CNN devoted to college basketball. So I was on live CNN around the world. I mean, you could watch me in Pakistan talking about ACC basketball at the age of, you know, 27, 28, getting getting my chops. So, um, yeah, I I, got to a point on college basketball where, you know, if they had had like I mean, Alex Wolf was a great writer in college basketball, but he wasn't kind of a nuts and bolts beat guy. So I saw I saw some real estate there that I could claim. And once I um, demonstrated to the editor, college basketball editor, Greg Kelly, that I knew something and could help him do his job, I was getting more and more responsibilities there. And then when you combine that with the, with the TV thing, really kind of establishing myself as a college basketball expert um, kind of took off from there.
0: So did you never see yourself, did you never envision yourself as becoming a sort of Gary Smith, Rick Riley, Steve Russian, long sort of flowery prose, you know, blah, 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 blah. Like, was that not the path you ever sought?
1: Oh, I, I wanted that. I definitely wanted that. The problem was I wasn't nearly as good as they were. <laughs> you know, it was like, I mean, you know what that's like. I mean, so so Sports Illustrated has 30, 40 writers, but only what, five or six stories a week in the table of contents, right? You know, and it's like you're you're teening up against Tiger Woods every week. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't go there and I couldn't, you know, tell Greg, hey, I should write the final four story instead of Alex. You know, I should write the final four story instead of Grant. And and people probably don't remember Grant Wall as a, he was a great, great college basketball writer um, before he went soccer full time. So, um, in fact, and I had, I have to say, Jeff, and I'm sure you can relate to this too. I had a lot of sort of painful experiences trying to be those guys and just getting smacked down. I mean, they certainly okay. didn't care about your feelings. And I had the experience of, I, I went to Marquette and did a story on Dwayne Wade when no one knew who the heck the guy was. I'm like, oh my God, this guy's amazing. He's got a cool story. He had a kid. I sat in his apartment with, with him and his, uh, who, uh, I think he was married at the time. Uh, his first wife, Siobhan, and their kid, and he was just like this soft-spoken, and I knew Tom Crean pretty well, and I wrote the story, and they didn't run it. I guess it wasn't good enough. That was painful, but I, I you know, I, and that's kind of, you know, the book thing kind of evolved for me to try to develop my long form, so that that that's a skill that takes probably the longest to develop, but in the meantime, I was in survival mode, like, okay, I, I can't write a 5,000-word bonus, but give me the inside college basketball column, and, and let me stick around for another week.
0: I feel like it's almost like we're from another planet. Like I see these young faces here and it's almost like it's hard to explain. All right. So I just want to put this in perspective. Yes. We're there at Sports Illustrated. It's a magazine that is print. And the only priority is print, putting out this print magazine. Okay. It's read by, I don't know what the circulation was, 3.5 million people. And it was appointment reading for sports fans. Everybody who is a sports fan got Sports Illustrated and your stories were big and it was a video and they would spend lavish amounts of money. Like every, I think it was every Sunday night, they would bring in like this six course dinner that was like really ridiculously good. And they would have these holiday Christmas parties that I said to my wife the other day, $400,000. I mean, it was these huge parties at like Tavern on the Green. And Seth is right, like you would write stories. My first story, I think I was supposed to get in the magazine as a staff writer, was about a boxer, Archie Moore. He was a famous fighter and his daughter was becoming a fighter. And they flew me out to see her. They flew me out to interview her. They put me up in a hotel that probably cost 250 a night. They rent you a car, blah, 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 blah. And then they're like, yeah, we don't have room. We're not going to run this story. Money just didn't seem like an object. I mean, Seth, am I wrong, Seth? Does that not uh, feel co- like... A co-
1: couple of things. F- f- first of all, I mean, I remember my one of my favorite go-to... having like a
0: rap battle. Over- I know.
1: I know, right? So what my, one of my go-to sort of dinner banquet stories is about rick majerus um flying out to uh interview him um and you know rick majerus never lived in a house or an apartment he lived in the salt lake city marriott
0: wait we should say he was the utah men's basketball coach
1: at the time he was utah later st louis he you know went you know generously you know what 510, 350 probably 450 i mean he was an obese Mm -hmm. man um and, 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 and quite a character. And he was kind of rushing around. I was out there and he was rushing out to go to a jazz game and I got him at practice and he didn't really want to do the interview. And I'm like, I kind of, I flew out here from New York to talk to you. Like we should probably do this interview. He's like, all right, well, I'm getting ready for the, for the jazz game. And so we talked in this car, we go to his hotel and he was showering to go to the game. And this was just Rick, I'm standing in the, the hotel room and he got completely naked because he went to shower. I'm mean, I literally, I literally interviewed him about his team while he was showering because he's in the bathroom showering and I'm standing in the bathroom. Um, point being, that was for a half page preseason scouting report. So they flew me to Salt Lake City for a probably a 450 word scouting report. But I talked about getting there in July 95, December before that, you know about the big Orlando trip? Did you ever hear about that? I was there the airport. You weren't there, but you heard about it. They yep. flew the whole magazine, writers, photographers, secretaries, assistants, everybody flew them to Orlando for like a long four-day weekend. Everybody got shit-faced. They had like one company meeting with a with a presentation so they could write it off. And they just partied for four days. And so that's how they, you know, it's sad what's happened to it, but but I we were definitely there at, I think, peak. Sports Illustrator, I guess, maybe the beginning of the end, hopefully wasn't tied to the fact that we were there um, at the time. And I always thought you left there too early, by the way, but that's another conversation.
0: Wait, I just want to say, Seth, I will take your Rick Madera story and I will up you by saying two things. Number one, I once interviewed Seattle Mariners uh, manager Lou Piniella while he was standing at a urinal peeing, eating a hoagie and smoking a cigarette all at the same time while talking to me.
1: We're missing a hand, but go ahead.
0: (laughs) Two, cigarette, hoagie in one hand. Number two,
1: <laughs> I'm not going to ask where your hands were. but go yeah, ahead. No, no.
0: I interviewed um, legendary comedian Rodney Dangerfield when I was oh. in Newsday, day and he was in a robe, but the robe was wide open, smoking out of a bong while I was interviewing Rodney Dangerfield. Smoking
1: Wade. Wow. Did you inhale?
0: I did not. He was oh. miserable. He was at the end of his life. Why now. were you interviewing
1: Rodney Dangerfield?
0: Because he um, he had just had a book come out and he was in New York and they were trying to do press. for This the book. was new-
1: when you were Newsday?
0: Yeah, when I was in newsday.
1: Okay, so you were yeah. not just doing yeah. sports at that time. Um,
0: Legendary. And yeah. I always say, like, in fact, I'll ask you for your best story. Like, the, the thing about this profession, Jack McCallum, one of our former colleagues, Jack McCallum, was a great writer, and I've used this line a million times. He said to me when I was one day in the office, he said, you're not going to be the richest person from your graduating senior class, but when you go back to reunions, you're always going to have the best stories. Yeah. And I really think, like, Interviewing Rick Medeiros, interviewing Rodney Dangerfield, you know Lou Pinellas. Mo- the stories you accumulate in this profession, yeah, are bonkers.
1: There's a line I'm sure you've seen the movie Almost Famous, right? Can you can you re- can you recite it? Where you know um, where Lester Bangs is talking to the kid and he says about being a rock critic, and he says, "Well, you'll never get paid a lot, but." you'll get free records from the record company. Like if you love music, what's better than free records from all the record companies. So that's, that's why you get into it. And then hopefully, you know, for best-selling author like yourself, the money just starts flowing.
0: Oh yeah. I'll put you on the spot here. What is your money? Like I have obviously John Rocker, which I won't tell here, but right. As my money story, my money experience, that one story, I can tell parties for the next 60 years and it holds up. What's your money story from your career?
1: Well, the 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 Rick Majerus is a good icebreaker when I'm doing when I'm doing these talks. Another one is John Daly. You know, I covered uh, quite a bit of golf, which was an interesting pathway because you you know be exhausted from covering the tournament and go. This is I'm not look asking for sympathy. You go right from the final four to the Masters, mm-hmm. um, and then you go off and and a couple of events, and it's 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 a very it's, it's kind of a grind because. You know, basketball game lasts two hours, and a and a golf tournament lasts four days. But
0: wait, no one here, no one here is going to feel bad for you that you had to cover the final four and then go to the Masters. and then go to the Masters. I know, yeah. I
1: know. And you know what? And I I know you're not. Are you are you a golfer or no? Even yeah. you picked even living in California. Um, the the at the Masters, I'm pretty sure they still do this, Jeff. They have a, a media lottery where if you get picked in the lottery, you get to play the course that Monday. And I know it used to be they may have amended this, but it used to be once you got picked, you could never go back in the lottery again. I was a once in a lifetime. And my very first year covering the Masters, I got picked to play. So I have played um, Augusta Nationals. So that's a pretty good story. But, what'd you shoot? Uh, I shot 88. In fact, I have—I can tell you every, every, pretty much every shot. And I have the the, the scorecard buried in one of my uh, desk drawers here. I got to know John Daly pretty well. You know, the, 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 the PGA Tour, I have to say golfers are not like real interesting. Um, and because they're all basically individual CEOs and you're always kind of waiting on the 18th green to you know, hope, hope he didn't bogey the 18th so he doesn't blow you off. So you know, I, I, there were a lot of things about, but John Daly was the opposite. Like John, and, and these were boring people. They had nothing to hide. They just didn't like talking. Whereas John Daly had a ton of things to hide. And so, and but he just opens it up for all the world to see. So I, I um, covered him for, the first time I covered him for a tournament was in Memphis, and I ended up, you know, I, I approached him at the, at the driveway and to swear on. he's like, yeah, yeah, meet me. He was staying at this casino across the, the line in, in Mississippi. And I went there and I watched him playing high stakes um, uh, slot machines where a couple of hundred. So we're kind of talking and he goes on this role like it lights up. He looks at me and he goes, that's 10 grand right there. And so over the course of, you know, a couple hours, he won, I want to say maybe 80 grand. And at one point I said to him, I, cause I'm thinking, you know, I'll watch him play and then, you know, we'll go to the, his room and we'll have the interview and I'll break, you know, break up my tape recorder, my notebook, and it'll be a little bit more formal. And at one point I said to him, well, are we going to go somewhere and talk? And he looks at me and he says, well, ask your questions, bud, what are you doing? So part of the storyline was he, uh, he was engaged. So I met his fiance and he was telling me about, of course he's, you know, rediscovered his life again and he's sort of clean again and he's got, he's going to get married and this time it's going to be for good and blah, 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 blah. And he has this whole thing. And so I published a story and six weeks later, he got married to somebody else. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Who we met that week as I later okay. found out. So how about this for the kicker? So in the scorecard section or somewhere, it was some item about John Daly getting married and like, oh, we just wrote the story about John with pictures of his fiance. So they wrote John Daly getting married and they put a picture of the woman from that weekend next to that story. And I had to call, I don't know if it was Jim Harry or whoever it was saying, I got news for you guys. That's not the girl he married. (laughs) And like that was six weeks ago. I said, that's John Daly, (laughs) you know? Um, And I I later um, actually want, I'm looking at a plaque on my wall. I want a uh, golf writer story later on because that marriage went really bad and there was some domestic abuse going on her to him. And I got the whole story. And John Garrity and I wrote, wrote a long um, bonus piece for sports illustrated about, about John. So he was a great, he was a great guy to cover, man. Cause he had stuff to say and he was, he had nothing to hide.
0: I just want to say, I did not cover that much golf, but every now and then I'd be given a golf story. I didn't know anything about golf. And um, I covered a senior event one time and I didn't want to just sit in the clubhouse and watch on TV. So I decided I was going to walk the course and I'm walking the course and you can walk inside the ropes. If you're a golf writer, you can walk inside the ropes. Otherwise you're outside the ropes. And I'm walking inside the ropes. I don't know anything about golf. There's a guy named Gary player. Who's a legendary golfer. And I'm walking inside the ropes and I'm staring down at my notepad. And all of a sudden I hear someone yell, Hey, Hey you. And I don't, I don't look He you. It's you asshole. And I look and it's me. And Gary Player's ball is literally sitting between my legs. <laughs> I almost kicked Gary Player's balls. I was the <laughs> asshole covering golf. So my, my golf career is like, wait, Seth, Jonathan asked a question. We have questions here. He okay. said, so you've obviously covered a gazillion March Madnesses through your career." He said, what is your favorite part of covering March Madness?
1: Well, I would say, say the selection show um, is, is probably my peak professional moment of, of the year. And, and the reason is, you know, everything that I do, Jeff, is, you know, I'm commenting on the action. I'm writing, I'm, you know, you're watching a game and at halftime and there I am with Clark Kellogg and we're talking about the game. For the selection show, we are the action. We have the information and all of these schools are around watching us. So it's like, you know, the whole season builds up to it. And then that whole day is kind of like a long sort of calm before the storm. And it can be very um, challenging because, you know, the show starts at six and usually we have like the big 10 championship game is leading into the show, but there's a, a long fill show. We might be filling some years for, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes or longer, 40 minutes waiting for the top of the show. And in the meantime, we're waiting for the bracket and, you know, different years, you know, sometimes it comes five to six, sometimes it comes 45 minutes earlier. And obviously, you know, you want more time to be be able to prepare. I remember one year it came so late that they were handing us shot sheets for highlights that we were going to do at the top of the selection show. Like we were going to open up the selection show, not ready to reveal the bracket because we didn't have it. Because not just about getting it to us, we're the least important. It's all about graphics and the production of it. And they have a million remotes. I mean, it's a heck of a production, but it is like, you know, it's such a buildup. And then that bracket comes in. It's boom. And I'm like filling out. And I fill out my own bracket like super quick. And we got to map out sort of our format, who's making what point. And Greg Gumbel's reading off the teams. And and we're kind of going like this to let them know when we want to jump in. And then they jump to us for comments. And then they want our final four and our sleeper. And it's like, and then it's over. You're like, what the hell? What'd I say? <laughs> you know, Um and then, you know, th- those first two days, the Thursday and Friday, um, which I'm in the, the Atlanta studios, I mean, those are like super long days. I mean, it starts with like an 8 a.m. production meeting, and then we'll have an hour-long pregame, and then the games start at noon, and they're coming at you fast and furious. We're never quite sure when we're going to be on. I'm never quite, now that we're on four networks, when we're on, I'm never positive, like, what network, like, sometimes I'll turn to the hosts, and they like, the Turner guys like this. I'll turn to the host and say, by the way, what what network are we on right now? And we're like, I don't know. Are we on true? Are we on TBS? Um, and then it ends up with a, with a late night highlight show. And then you do the whole thing back the next day. Once I'm through those first two days, I'm kind of home free. So it's, you know, people ask me like, how do you prepare? You know, it's not like I'm jamming in homework on these teams. I mean, I'm immersed in college basketball all year and I'm surrounded by A team of researchers. I have my packets. I have my notes. I can ask any question. They're feeding me like getting information is the least of the challenges at that point. I'm much more focused on getting my sleep, getting my exercise, meditating, you know, staying healthy, not getting sick. Um, So it's, it's quite a physical grind. And then, you know, the final four is obviously very exciting, Um, you know, to go on at halftime. The last few years, it's been just, you know, me and Greg Gumbel, who's just really, truly one of my best friends uh, at halftime, Monday night of the national championship game, biggest game of the year in the arena, 90,000 people around your live TV. It's pretty, uh, it's, it's it's as fun and as exciting and as, as energizing as you might think.
0: When we were coming up, I hate to sound like old man grandpa all the time, but That's when okay. we were coming, like when you were coming out of Duke, guys like Christian Leitner and Bobby Hurley and then Grant Hill, and they were gonna stay for at least three years Generally four years, and I was just reading the other day an article about Pearl Washington at Syracuse and Patrick Ewing at Georgetown. And you, you came to know these players and know who they were, and you got to see their development because they were there one, two, three, oftentimes four years, and then they would come out. I wonder if it is in the course of your career, the number of quality, high-level players who just come out immediately, has it changed your relationship with the game and the way you cover and sort of think and maybe even enjoy the game.
1: Um, I mean, I would say basically no, because, you know, I mean, it's our job to cover the story and that's that's what it is. And I, I certainly don't begrudge anybody. I mean, um, you know, the obituary for college basketball has been written, you know, 50 different times since I've come on the beat for a variety of uh, reasons. Um, most of all, what, what you're describing, these guys go bro, the, the, the watershed was Kevin Garnett. Uh, And that was 1995. So, again, that was right after I got to Sports Illustrated. And this is kind of a cool story where –
0: I just want to say Garnett came out of high school. He was the first guy since Moses Malone maybe to go I think since
1: Moses – at least to be drafted that high.
0: He went straight from high school to the NBA. Yeah,
1: Fairgate Academy in Chicago. And and he was fifth in the draft. And I remember he was on the cover of SI right before the draft. I was like, well, you know – because you'd heard that, you know, this guy's going pro out of high school. And, of course, back then you were allowed to – And again, I was, you know, I was, I knew about this because I covered recruiting, right? So, I mean, I knew about him a little bit, um, but I knew the, I knew the world of recruiting and, you know, everybody was making it out to be like Kevin Garnett was a once in a generation player. And he was obviously a great, great player. But my point is that, you know, every year, almost every year, there's a player who's like really, who's good enough to do this. Like this is now going to be an every year thing. So I said, this, I, this, this is actually one of the first things I published. I, I, I proposed to the scorecard guys, which I believe would have been Jack and Rich O'Brien, as saying, I want to call the top 20 players in the next high school class. And I want to ask all of them, are because of Kevin Garnett, are you thinking of, I want to take a poll because I want to demonstrate that because of this, they're all going to now want to do this. And one of those players was Kobe Bryant. I got his home number. And I remember this where he came on the phone and I said, are, are you considering going pro? And his answer was, yes, I want to go pro out of high school because I want to get to the NBA before Michael Jordan gets too old. That was wow. his answer, <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> which is very Kobe-esque. Um, so, you know, the only thing that would potentially change for me, Jeff, would be my quote unquote relationship with players. But, you know, for better or worse, I don't really have those relationships so much anymore because I don't cover Games so much, you know. For SI, I used to be at a different game every week, and I would usually be sitting down with a player. Now, you know, I'm kind of locked into my studio work, so a lot of it is over the phone. I might get some things from time to time. Um, you know, like I did a long story on Grace and Allen, so he and I got to develop a relationship. I did a long story for the Athletic last year on Sabrina Ionescu, my first ever women's player. So she and I are still in touch. We text. So, um, you know, I mean college basketball is fine and it's going to be fine. And, you know, it's still people enjoy watching the games because of the names on, on the front of the Jersey. They like rooting for their teams. When the tournament comes, they fill out a bracket. So they follow the action. A lot of people who don't know much about sports, you can, you don't have to know anything to be able to fill out a bracket. Um, And so it's never, it's never bothered me. And, and it's really, you'd be hard pressed to quantify. Everyone says, well, college basketball has really been hurt by these guys going pro, but you'd kind of be hard-pressed to quantify that. Like, okay, well, where are they hurt? Is it TV ratings? Is it rights money? Is it, you know, the money at the gate? It's, yeah, the TV ratings are down, but ratings are down everywhere because it's just so much, so, so much of it. So um, it really, I mean, college basketball, financially speaking, relative to all the other sports is actually quite healthy. Uh, and in terms of its growth and its uh, trajectory, so there's always going to be challenges and, and changes. But you know, the games are still. Listen, I, give, give me a good you know high school basketball game with kids who will never play a lick of college. Give me a good summer camp basketball game from kids who aren't even good enough to play in high school. And you know, sports is sports. So um, I, I think college basketball has done quite well for itself, given all the changes it's it's seen.
0: Before we continue with two
1: writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor.
0: Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my wife, Catherine. And while we're bunkered inside because of the coronavirus, we're here talking about 503 Sports, king of the... Are you kidding me? What? Seriously, are you kidding me? I... I've been stuck inside for four days, eating moldy cold pizza and drinking watered-down coffee, and everywhere I turn, you are standing there. Just get out of my face, man. This sucks so badly, I can't even... So, no 503 Sports, kings of the... Get out of my face! I just want to say one of the I think one of the most misleading things that have been, uh, has been uttered a million times over the past bunch of years. You heard a lot from Donald Trump in relation to the NFL actually is, oh, the ratings, blah, 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 the ratings, blah, blah, blah. It's like fact. There are eight million channels now. There's just more places to go. It is ne- it is such a they, when, whenever they don't quali- qualify it by saying, but there are a million more viewing options now. It's It's just a dishonest metric.
1: Well, now that it's like when, when people would say, you know, they got mad at the Kaepernick thing. Well, I'm going to stop watching the NFL. Like, no, you're not. (laughs) No, you're not. You you may not like what he did or what's going on, but you're still going to watch the game. Like show me in the research where the NFL's ratings are doing any worse compared to other sports. Right. And, And so I know that fans in surveys will say, we're not going to watch the games, but they're still watching the games.
0: So there's a, here's another question. Uh, It said, what challenges have you guys had doing your job during COVID? College basketball for Seth, working on your books for Jeff. I'll just say personally, in a way, the one thing I miss is I don't work, I love writing and working at coffee shops. Obviously that's off the table, but I will say in a weird way, COVID has kind of helped me hyper-focus. Like I'm home, I know I'm here. I can't just, you know, jerk around in a coffee shop and talk to people and blah, I'm here. And I think in that regard, it hasn't been so bad. But for, for you, I mean- was he was the final four being canceled? Last, I mean, the uh, tournament being canceled last year, just a dagger to your heart?
1: Yes and no. And it, that, like that's that's the most salient way that that it, it affected me. And I think people are, are a little bit lost on that, especially in this whole debate, like should the games go on and you know what, what do you do in the era of COVID? Um, college basketball is the only sport that happened to because everybody else resumed. I mean, the NBA stopped and they finished their season. Baseball started late truncated their season but they still play and they got a world series everybody else came back or college basketball lost their season so um and again that was, it was interesting because you know the sunday before the selection show so one week before the selection show we had the chair of the committee they they actually meet now in new york to, to select the bracket so the chair of the committee and the main guy from the ncaa dan gavitt they were in our studio we did a segment and this was one of the things that came up was you know how are you guys dealing with this pandemic and what's And both in terms of what they had to say in our on the air, but then also off the air as I kind of grilled them a little bit more kind of on background, they were very determined to play. Like at that point, they hadn't even decided no fans. Um, They're like, wait, we're talking to the CDC. We're talking to everybody. We're playing. Like there's, we're getting no, no one's telling us don't play. We feel like we can play. This thing is not that Thursday, they canceled the tournament. So I think it was like Tuesday, they said no fans. And then, you know, Wednesday night was was Rudy Gobert. Um, that was the big watershed for everybody. And the NBA announced that it once the NBA said they, they're not playing, I mean, I knew that I remember being at my son's uh, baseball game and in, in, uh, locally here in California and seeing that and be like, well, there's no way they're playing the tournament. So that's how fast it metastasized. You know, aside from that, Jeff, I think a lot of people are experiencing what, what you just said. Um, I can't tell you how many coaches – I've talked to, and certainly talked to in like May, June, July. How you doing? And they all said the same thing. I've spent more time with my family the last six weeks than in the last twelve years. Um, and so it's like, do when they we, follow we, that?
0: Do they follow that by saying, "Get me the hell out of here"? Or?
1: <laughs> no, I, no, they actually like it. Like you find out that you really like you really like your family. You know, who knew? Um, who are who are these people running around my house? Right. Um, and so, you know, I would kind of say to people, "How you doing?" It's like, well, you know, if it wasn't for the feeling that the world was going to end, uh, it might be kind of nice, you know. And so, you know, I hope as we come out of this, and hopefully, we're coming out of this, I'm going to be very interested to see. You know, I, I liken it to the, you know, the Great Depression uh, led to a, a lot, led to the the New Deal, and then later the, the Great Society. You know, major reforms, the social safety net like you know, Social Security. Um, and th- those were put in place to get us out of the depression. But then once the depression passed, those things stayed. And I'm going to be very curious to see what f- things stay. You know, what are, what are the disruptions that are happening, particularly with people, um, you know, physically going to work and paying, you know, these businesses paying a lot of money for workspace. I know commercial real estate has a tough time. Um, education has been disrupted. You know, can, can we get to a point where education becomes more accessible to people and not quite so expensive if we can um, do it, you know, online and and, and over Zoom. So, um, you know, I'm, I can't <laughs> say enough how fortunate I feel to work for The Athletic, which although we've had our challenges, I think, um, The athletic, uh, the the business model and the vision uh, of an all subscriber media company has very much been validated to, you know, certainly if it was ad supported, like a lot of places, it wouldn't, uh, might not have survived or taken more of a hit. I mean, the athletic is doing very well, all things considered. It's an incredible culture. It's an incredible place to work. It was challenging at the athletic for a while to turn out all these stories without games to cover. So we had to get like super creative, like we were literally doing Jeff, like, you know, the best player to wear each Jersey number over the years, you know, the right. top 20 that like we were, we were doing these drafts for each school. Like we're going to do a UCLA draft of all time UCLA players and have Steve Lavin pick his favorite, you know, so we were, we were doing everything that we could to get through. But Once the games came back, we were in a pretty good position to capitalize. So I feel right. very lucky.
0: Um, I do want to say, so Seth early on, Seth was at the athletic very early on in the process. And when he told me about it at first, I was like, I don't know. Like, I, I wasn't saying that out loud, but I was like, I don't know. Like, our, no ads, subscription-based, I don't know. And I got to say, the thing's freaking done really, really well and has been a real savior for an industry that's struggled mightily. And the number of people I know who say to me, do you know if The Athletic is hiring? Do you know if The Athletic is hiring? is <laughs> astronomical. Um, how do you explain it? How do you actually explain this thing taking off the way it has.
1: I can I can absolutely explain. I mean, it's like anything else. It's good leadership, uh, and the co-founders Alex Mather and Adam Hansman. Um, th- the difference is people have to understand this is a Silicon Valley startup. These guys came out of a company called Strava, which is an intense um, exercise uh, platform, which which became so popular around the world. There was a t- uh, an article in the in New York Times a couple of years ago that it was giving away. Um, like secret military installations in the Middle East because so many of the American soldiers were on Strava that it was like a GPS hotspot.. Wow. <laughs> so these guys understood the model of harvesting subscribers. They had they had the balls to leave very good jobs at that company to start this thing up because they were they, they saw the potential. Um, and, they, and they understood like like only the folks in Silicon Valley do is that if you want to know what how to build and grow, you, you got to measure everything. You know, And we know every story that we publish, we know exactly how many people subscribed to The Athletic because of that story. We know how many people, how many of our subscriber, subscribers um, read that story. We know uh, when people do a trial, um, uh, we know the behavioral patterns, like how many of them listen to podcasts, for example, um, when they decide to re-up, when they decide to renew. Like how, So we're measuring everything. So we're not guessing. Now, there's some trial and error, and there's plenty of things we think are going to go great, which flop, so you don't do them again. And there are things that you didn't expect to go well, and they take off like, oh my God, we're going to build a whole platform around this. So when you sort of have that constant feedback now, you can imagine, Jeff, you and I, I, know, I know you're very, very secure in everything that you do, but you know other writers tend to get insecure. Um, and so you're going to see your numbers now, <laughs> you know, I mean, you can spend a lot of time on a story and then you look at your dashboard and it's like one person signed up for it and you want to hang yourself. But, um, and, but, and that's very much a part of your review cycle. And, and, um, but they, they've cultivated the culture where you're not, they still want you taking chances. They don't want you too bogged down on it. And so it's really very simple. And, and I, I honestly don't understand why more people, like more media organizations don't do this. Like, like if you, and, and and here here's the good news, not only for our industry, Jeff, but I think humanity, and certainly for you as, a, as an author, the stories that do the best are the long pieces, long, well-reported, nuanced, we're very much about access, insider information. Um, so when people say about this whole attention span thing, well, people won't won't read that long. It's not only not true, it's actually the opposite of true. And it's a, it's a, it's a concept as simple as, as the first caveman who figured out how to, how to start a fire. Uh, If you give people something worth paying for, they'll pay for it. They'll give you a couple of bucks a month for it. And so, um, you know, even though in some ways, I don't know, maybe others doing it will be competition for us and, and, uh, you know, nothing we can't handle, but I wish more media organizations had that foresight to, let Instead of going the other way, which is aggregate, clickbait, videos, you know, pre-rolls. Um, I mean, I'm not going to name it anything specific, I guess, but it's I just it's like, you know, Sports Illustrated as a brand was up for a song. I mean, it was like, you know, like three if you could get like three large cups of Starbucks coffee, you could buy Sports Illustrated, you know. Yeah. And so I don't know why somebody. And it's probably still a more of a well-known brand than The Athletic. Like I'm, I'm amazed at how many people don't know about The Athletic and haven't like real sports fans. And that that gives me hope, but like, why wouldn't somebody buy Sports Illustrated and try to make like, or we're going to take on The Athletic. I don't understand. So, um, but the leadership of of Alex and Adam is, is, is basically the answer. It's a smart concept. They hire good people. uh, And they've done a really good job creating a culture that values writers, that values quality, that makes you feel like you're part of a family. They were unbelievably transparent during the whole pandemic. I mean, we would have these monthly meetings, and showing show, we'll show you all the numbers. Here's what we're seeing. Here's what we're dealing with. Here's why we're making these decisions. Um, and I just, I, I mean, you want to talk about getting fired at the right time? I mean, I would, I, I got laid off. I mean, to see this thing grow when I signed on with the Athletic, they were only in three cities. Yeah, and I think they had like two dozen people maybe 10,000 subscribers as a company. And I was like their first national guy. I came along with Stuart Mandel, who had also got laid off uh, by Fox. And our old boss, uh, Paul Fichtum at Sports Illustrated was kind of helping them out on a consultancy basis. And remember we had this meeting up in San Francisco at a a law firm because their offices couldn't really hold us. Um, And to go from that, now they have probably, I want to say 400 employees. They passed a million, this was three and a half years, Jeff a million subscribers um that's an incredible success story and and I, and I promise you they're just they're just scratching the surface of what they're capable of doing.
0: I do feel like a lot of times in modern media people get the idea that you're going to tweet your way to success and you're going to tweet your way to fame and blah 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 and the truth of the matter is and I agree with everything you just said Seth people want to be shown something they can't see. Like that's what really good journalism does. is you take someone behind the scenes. You show them a scene they You take them into Mike Krzyzewski's office or you show them what, whoever, you know, Kevin Durant, what his recovery was like step-by-step in article. And if you can show people those things, they will pay attention to you. Too often, because we're in this kind of Skip Bayless, Stephen A. Smith kind of world, it's I'm going to yell really loud and people are going to pay attention to me. But that stuff is just sugar. It's just a sugar rush. That's That's all it is. And the same thing that we were brought up being told, take the reader where they can't go still holds up today. And if you guys can do that as young journalists, you will have a much brighter future in this profession.
1: Whenever somebody asks me, you know, advice for how to, you know, talk to my my sister has a neighbor's nephew's friend, wants to, I'm happy to talk. Um, I always say that, I always say, be a reporter, yeah. be a reporter, be a reporter, be a reporter. And and I'd, I'd recommend all of Jeff Perlman's books for that because it's like, you know it's uh it's a thing that the number of people you talk to like that's a big thing with you um and so that, that you know that has incredible value like you know one time i think it was my actually it was my sister's neighbor's son uh, i talked to him i said well send me some stuff i'll take a look at it and he sent me this breakdown of, of the nba first round of the nba draft and it was player by player and he gave me his opinions about this guy what he did and how it fit and i i, I called him back i said, you know this, this is pretty good you know i I'm mean I'm, I'm impressed it's pretty good but No offense. Let me ask you a question. Why, why would I care what you think about the NBA draft? Right. Like you're some, you're a high school junior in, in Maryland. Like why, like, instead of telling me what you think, why don't you get, why don't you interview the GM of the wizards or why don't you, you know, talk to a player, talk to an agent, talk to somebody who's, you know, teach me something. And so, um, because I promise you, even if you're a really good writer, like a great writer at the age of 17 is not a very good writer.
0: You'd rather read, You'd rather read a profile that that guy wrote of the point guard at his school and his journey than 17 yeah. year olds take on the NBA draft. As yeah. A yeah.
1: Yeah. No, teach me something, teach me something. I don't know. And the better your information, the better of, of a writer that, that you're going to be. So in terms of the stories that you choose to write about how you execute them, and then the stories you choose to send to prospective employers, mm-hmm. like don't send me your wise guy column send me your 3000 word enterprise story where you've called 10 people and you've done um, a bunch of research. So, but the other thing, you know, in, in a broader concept to what you were saying about, you know, guys like Stephen A and Bayless and, you know, look, I have nothing against those guys. I mean, I don't not need a it. cup of tea, but God bless them. Um, but, you know, my dad always used to have an expression, how are you going to separate yourself from the pile? Like you're applying to a school and the person has, you know, a stack of two hundred. Applications on his or her desk, or you're applying for a job, and and the person has you know 500 resumes on her, his or her desk. How are you going to separate your resume from that pile? And so, reporting is is how you can do that. I always have used the TV writing hybrid as a way to do that. Like there are a lot of people I know who are much better writers than I am, but um, there are not a lot of writers at that level who are doing television the way that i think that i can do it i know there are a lot of people who are much more gifted broadcasters than i am but there aren't a lot of people on television who have my gravitas as a writer so that's how i've tried to separate myself from the pile. from from the pile so whatever your industry is that you you choose to pursue i think that's a good way to to, to try to get a competitive advantage
0: yeah i agree 100 i just want to say when i uh When I applied for sports to Sports Illustrated for the first time, I was a food and fashion writer at the Nashville Tennessean. (laughs) But my dream was to write for Sports Illustrated. Well, when I
1: think of you, I think of fashion.
0: Yeah, right. Clearly. um, Clearly. I had no shoes on right now. And um, I applied to Sports Illustrated. And I took the front of the magazine. And they used to do this thing called the letter from the editor. And it would be a letter from the editor of the magazine to the readers.
1: The pub memo.
0: The pub memo. And I took that format. Laid it out exactly as it was, and wrote a letter from the editor of Sports Illustrated. Twenty years down the road, saying, "When we first got a letter from Jeff Perlman back in 1996, we had no idea who he was—a food and fashion writer. Who the heck is this guy?" That was the letter I wrote them, and it looked exactly like a page from SI. And I got a call a couple of weeks later saying, "We all loved your letter. Um, can you pitch us some ideas and do a?" So free- you
1: sent that to SI.
0: Sent it to SI, and I got a call from Stephanie saying, "We love the letter. Blah blah blah." And um, they asked me to pitch some stories. I pitched the stories. The one story that they assigned me was when I was, again, making yourself look different. When I was a junior at Delaware, I applied early for the NBA draft. I didn't yeah. play college basketball, but I applied early. <laughs> for the NBA draft. I think I heard that story. Yeah. I pitched them that. And that was my first story for Sports Illustrated. So like how's some guy who's a food and fashion writer out of some mediocre journalism program in the state of Delaware. There are always ways to make yourself stand out. You know,
1: yourself- I'm looking, I'm, you can, oh my God, I can't believe I just found this only because I'm sitting next to it. Okay. So this is, you probably can't see this. This is, uh, I don't know if you can see this headline. It says a most unlikely cover story Davis applies to SI. Okay. So I was at the New Haven register and I typed this up in the register system and I printed it out. Back then there was a composing room where the, where the, Pages would come out and people would cut them and and paste them onto the sheet, which became the day's paper. It was by Cove R. Letter. And uh, it was a byline on it. And it starts off against all reason, defying all logic, challenging all odds. Sports writer Seth Davis has applied to Sports Illustrated for a reporter's position. And and, and only because Ashley McGahee, now Ashley Fox, somehow I had a mutual friend. I called her for advice. I wanted to apply. And she said to me, take a chance with your cover letter. And the other thing she said, the person that I was writing to, Stephanie Krasnow, uh, spell her name right, because she spells it S-T-E-F-A-N-I-E. And I had a quote from Steph in here saying, one of the things saying, I haven't seen chutzpah like this since my days reading the Daily Pennsylvanian. So I'm letting her know that I know she went to Penn. So that was and that was a big risk now that I look back on it, because that's the kind of. That was your cover letter. I I sent my packet of stories from New Haven. I sent it into Sports Illustrated and instead of the traditional cover letter, awesome. that was my cover letter. And Steph um, called me like a couple of weeks ago. Uh, later, I remember I got a, a, a message on an answering machine, explained to kids what an answering machine is yeah. saying, we loved your letter and we want you to entertain us some more. And that started the interview process. And um, every time I talk to Steph, I always say, Steph, thank you for hiring me because that was my big break. And in fact, her husband, Dan Kaufman, uh, is uh, I work with him at The Athletic too. So um, that's, that's, that's how we roll, I guess. You get creative and take some chances.
0: I do want to say also, one of my good friend of mine, when I was at the Tennessean, there was a guy at the University of Delaware. He was applying for an internship. And back then, it was really competitive. And his cover letter was, the editor was Catherine Mayhew. He wrote, Dear Mrs. Mayhew. I am not a good dancer. I cannot dance. I can't sing. I can't recite all the lines to Bohemian Rhapsody. I can't. And it was like a hundred things he can't do. And he wrote, but I really love journalism. And she's like, I love this letter so much. I'm hiring this person. You will, every now and then writing a snazzy cover letter, the person reading it will be like to hell with this and throw it away. But someone's eye will be caught by it. And it's worth the risk to me. And I think seven, we're both examples of this. Like, it's worth the risk of going for it on your cover letter.
1: Yeah. I, I, don't, I mean, it's like, especially I would think for, for journalism, right? I mean, yes. you're applying as a writer and you want to be creative in your writing when you're, if you're ostensibly working for this person. Yep. So why would they not like, now you better be able to pull it off. Well, Yeah. you know, but if you're not good, you're not going to get the job anyway, probably. Right. So it's just that notion of sort of you know get outside the box and think creatively and and think, right. well, how am I like? They get a hundred of these letters. How am I going to make it different? And it's everything you go through in life. Like everyone's trying to do this. What's going to make me different? What's going to make me succeed where where no one else is? It's just a good way to go through life.
0: It's so interesting. I never thought of this. And uh, there's one more question here. But I was thinking, um, I bet if you took most of the people who are, who came out of SI back when we came out, like varying skill levels, like everyone knew how to write, blah blah blah, but varying skill levels and this and that and that. Well, like I bet we all thought outside the box. Like, I bet somewhere in our lives, we were all sort of, in some way or another, creative thinkers, whether it's with a lead or a cover letter or an approach. There weren't many people back then who were just, you know, play it by the book.
1: Sports Illustrated, it was a hard job to get. I mean, just being yeah. a fact checker, a reporter at Sports Illustrated, I mean, so you're already, um, you know, you've already, you know, cleared some very high hurdles there. So, and again, you know, I, I, I do think that the job, of journalism maybe attracts those kinds of people. Like you have to be proactive. You have your chase. Like that's the exciting thing. Like you drive into J.R. writer's house. Yeah. Like that's fun. Like that's yeah, cool. cool. You yeah. know, that's the fun part of chasing people down and um, thinking along those lines and pitching things and breaking things. And that's just, I think that's just kind of how we're wired.
0: Wait, we have two uh, questions here from Andre's number one, early on in your career, what was a moment where you thought to yourself, wow, I'm actually getting paid to do this.
1: I mean, CBS is the easy one. Like my dad still talked about, cause like when I started with CBS, you know, they brought me on and I'm not sure they knew what they were going to do with me. And I didn't pitch myself in the role that I had, you know, the role that I have right now is usually goes to like um, coaches or, or players, you know? And so, you know, it was like midway through my first season there where Tony Petiti said to me, he said, yeah, we're going to have you at the desk during the, during the tournament. And I'm like this desk, like what I, I, I mean, I thought for the tournament, I'd be working for SI, you know, at some first round side. I didn't I didn't I don't think they knew either. And so I remember saying to my agent at the time, like, is this going to end with me like on the platform at the final four? And he's like, well, it seems to be where it's headed. And I said, if I'm at the platform at the final four, I'm going to lose my mind. And it's like, well, hopefully you're not going to lose your mind because a lot of people are gonna be watching you. Uh, and I got my dad tickets there and he was kind of nearby and I kind of looked at him and at one point I held in my hands like, how the hell did this happen? What about you?
0: I would actually say, I was just thinking about this. So when I was a young writer at the Nashville Tennessean, this is a weird answer, but true. I was a cops reporter because I was I got punished for being such a poor reporter. They put me on cops.
1: Great beep to learn how to be a reporter, by the way. Great Go beep.
0: Ahead. And I had a police scanner and I would wait for something. One day the national police department calls I've told this story before, but they said, do you, uh, we're doing a prostitution sting. We want a reporter to come along. <laughs> come along. And I always say, if you're ever asked, if you're ever asked in your role as a journalist, do you want to come along for blank, 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 the answer is always yes. Okay. So basically it's a, it's a shitty part of Nashville and there's a dilapidated motel across the street. There's an undercover female officer in front posing as the hooker across the street from that there's a surveillance vehicle with me and a cop looking at a TV. And, um, at first we're watching everything happen. And then they said, do you want to go into the motel room with the cops? So when they bring in people to arrest and I was like, yes. So you always say yes. To these things I'm in this room, we're all quiet. We're in the bathroom, me and a bunch of cops, quiet, quiet, quiet. And all of a sudden you hear, come on, baby, come on in door opens. We all, whoom, we all jump out. Right. And this guy just has this look on his face and, um, He puts his wallet on the bed and it's him with his kids and his wife, a picture. And he basically, he was offering $40 for oral sex. Right. And I just, it sounds dumb and corny and white, but like, I was getting paid for this level of just insane excitement. Like you're getting paid to be here. You're getting paid to do these things. You know, you're getting paid to see things that you don't get to see. You get to ask questions. Other people cannot ask, you know, it's like, it is. I, the job comes with a lot of complications. It's a lot of struggle. It's definitely harder now than it used to be to break in. It is. But freaking the payoff of it is very, very high. And the access is very, well, very like,
1: high. Like what you say about asking things, like like I say to people, like, you know, I get to be that guy, you know, right. like, like you're, let's say you're at a restaurant or you're somewhere public and you see somebody famous and like that you're really interested in and say, Oh my God, I'd love to ask that person, Right. This question or these questions, but I don't want to be that guy. Well, we get to be that guy. Right. And do you, here's a question for you. Do you find that when you're in social settings? Yes. Like yes. dinner parties or whatever, that you just have no tolerance for small talk.
0: Oh, my it's, wife always I have
1: it. a real conversation here. Like I can't stand being here because we're all talking about, be, like I want to know about your family and your biggest mistake. And the last time you cried your eyes out. Right. I mean, I want to talk about real stuff.
0: My wife always goes, she always says, please don't interview the guests. She <laughs> says that. Don't interview. We don't
1: might entertain ourselves.
0: Are you like this? Are you like this? Like if I'm on an elevator and let's say like, you're just on an elevator for a long ride and the person that you maybe works in a hospital and has a identifying tag, I can't help but be like, so what's the grossest thing you've ever seen? What's <laughs> yeah. I just love asking questions. And I do think like, I really do think, I don't know many good journalists who aren't curious people. Yes. Don't know many good journalists who talk, who would rather talk than listen.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, and that's another great quality to have just in life is curiosity. You know, I saw an expression recently, curiosity is a superpower. Um, You know, if you, if you stay curious, you'll never grow old. So I'm, I'm constantly curious and trying to learn new things. So, okay, here's my question for you. So, and I've seen you, write about this and say this in, in different ways. And I, I'm pretty sure it was in your acknowledgements or somewhere in your, in your Laker book, which was absolutely so great. Um, and I'm so proud of you for, for, for doing it. Um, you talk about like the pain of writing a book and how hard it is to write a book. And you talk about like sitting somewhere for 30 minutes, trying to figure out what is the exact right word. Like, do you really do that? Or are you just like exaggerating to make a point? No, I do. So can I, can I tell you something yeah. like, that word is not that freaking important like I what you're doing you're what you're doing in writing a book as great as you are at it as much as I love your books it's just not that big of a deal so I don't know if it is to me yeah, like, no, but, this, this, but but that's but that's not helpful that i'm i'm relieving you of that i mean take a minute or so but it's like writer's block i'm sure you get asked like um writer's block. You know, how do you handle writer's block? You probably get that question a lot. You know, my answer is there's no such thing as writer's block because you can always write something that sucks. And, and and at the heart of writer's block, and I say this with love because you're a very humble person, but at the heart of writer's block, block is arrogance. Like what I'm doing is so important that I can't do it because I have to get it like exactly right. There is no exact right word. Have you read um, Stephen King wrote a book called On Writing? Have yeah. you read that? Yeah. yeah. He, he, he mentioned that. Like, if you sit there and try to force out a word, it's not the right word.
0: Okay, but here's why I disagree with you. First of all, to be clear, I don't think any of my books are important. And when people say, like, every now and then you get asked in an interview, well, what do you want your legacy to be? I don't I don't care. Like, I'm going to be dead. <laughs> Good. Good. Forgotten. It's okay. Like, Good. I don't care. None of these books are going to go down as all-time classics. And I, even if they did, I wouldn't. It's not It's It's not that important. But for me, I really mean this. It's like pleasure pain. Like, I actually like searching for the word. Like I actually enjoy the search for the word. Like it, I know it sounds yeah, like yeah. torture and I make it sound like torture, but right. I kind of enjoy the torture and I love sitting in a coffee shop, drinking a drink, just being like, what is this word I'm looking for? What is this word? No, no, no. May, and 30 minutes might be an exaggeration. I don't think there are many words. It takes
1: yeah. I doubt it's been 30. Let's be honest.
0: But I like the torture. I actually like the torture. So it's not, I wouldn't do it if I didn't actually ultimately enjoy yeah. it. And it's not, and I, I'm under no illusions that it makes a difference to anyone but me. Like I know, it doesn't matter to anyone but me. I'm the only person it matters to. You. But for me, it's something I kind of get into. That's all it is. Yeah.
1: Well, it's like you know. Look, life is life is a balance, and so you have to apply that pressure. Mm-hmm. And you have there has to be if it doesn't hurt, it's not it's not right. Right. So I I, I get that, but I'm just trying to reel reel you back in a little bit here. That, I appreciate. Like, talk about one. Word. Like it's one thing you say, like I you know I need to get this interview or I need to interview X number of people to to make to know that I have this thing you know right or I get it. If, 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 if it's 30 minutes to choose a word, it's not the right word. Well, Seth, thank you so much for joining us here. I remember to someone's earlier question about this when we did Jim Rome together yeah. and we were getting ready and you look at me and you said, I still can't believe I get to do this. Like, really? Like, fly me out here for a week and have me come on your show and talk about yes. silly stuff in sports. Like, I can't believe I'm doing this. So yes. I hope I hope we never lose that. And I predict that we never will. We, we'll never retire. As I say, writers don't retire, writers die. So um, I hope that doesn't happen for a long time because it's it's a fun way to make a living.
0: I want to thank today's guest, Seth Davis, for joining me on Two Riders and Yang. You can follow Seth on Twitter, at Seth Davis Hoops, and read his work at The Athletic. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders and Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and giving the show a nice review. I make literally 0 cents for doing this. It's all about word of mouth. Music is by the terrific MC White Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.